Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, immersion experience designer Ghislaine Boddington. It's about embodied collective intelligence and that collective intelligence does demand a huge shift in actually how culture and society work. Ghislaine will be engaging with us about the nature of immersive experience and whether and how to bring our bodies with us into the digital realm. When I moved up to the little town of Hastings-on-Hudson, in uh, Westchester, one of the first people that we became friends with was our UPS delivery guy, Danny. And uh, Danny was great because he would, you know, bring stuff into the house, especially if I wasn't there, like a big rug and all the kind of things that you get when you move into a house. And he'd carry them all the way in or up the stairs. And my wife would give him coffee or ice water. And, you know, he became our, our friend, but he was also just you know, really, really good at what he did. He knew where everybody in town lived. He knew, like, if you if you work in this little office in town and you're not there, he could probably bring the package to your house. So it gave us, especially coming from the Lower East Side, it gave us a really kind of Mayberry-like feeling of being understood, like our habits and what we... It, it just felt intimate. And we used to talk to Danny about everything, and he started to get in trouble with the UPS boss people because they put a uh, some kind of GPS tracker thing in his truck, and he wasn't following the route that the GPS thing was giving him. 
because he knew the town better than, you know, Google Maps or Waze or UPS or whatever it was they were using to direct him. He knew the way around town. He knew, oh, if I go around here and then here because it's a hard left over there, you know, I'll make it faster. And eventually, you know, they kept yelling at him that you're not going on the route. You're not going on the route, you know. And eventually he started to see that there was this car following him. And at first he couldn't figure out who it was. And then he realized it must be UPS, you know, sending like some kind of security force or whatever, you know, to monitor how he's going and build up evidence or whatever against him. But he wasn't absolutely sure. But they kept following and following everywhere he went. So he (laughs) used his cell phone and he called the cops and he said that, there's a car following me and it's getting late. I don't know who it is. So the cops then pull over the car. And um, then, you know, it turns out, yes, it was UPS people following him because they're monitoring him. And then they call him in the office and say, how dare you call the cops on us? And he said, I didn't know. I'm doing the thing. It says in the handbook, if you're being followed by a vehicle, then that's what you're supposed to do. You didn't tell me you were going to follow me. And uh, a couple of weeks later, they took uh he took Danny off our route and replaced him with a great guy, a guy named Glenn from Jamaica. And uh, Glenn was another sweet guy. And, you know, it took him a while to, to kind of learn the route. We still saw Danny. He'd come visit occasionally when he was passing through town, but they stuck him in a whole other neighborhood. And then we had Glenn. And Glenn, you know, originally, of course, he follows the GPS coordinates that he's given. And Eventually, as he also starts learning what are the better routes and the better things to do, you know, when he sees where the GPS is wrong and that that's not really number 20 South Street, that's 22, but 20 is over here. And he starts putting the packages in the right places and all. And then just as he really learns the system and starts violating the GPS, they pull him from that, too. And I'm like, what's going on? And what's going on is that these guys are supposed to be following the GPS rules because what UPS, like any delivery company, wants to do is eventually replace all these people with computers or drones or uh, autonomous vehicles or whatever it is. And those things are going to have to be able to get from place to place to place. And if their drivers are correcting for the the technology, if a driver is actually using initiative, using brain, using experience and memory, rather than just blindly following the GPS, then they're not, at least as they're set up the technology at this company, they're not helping. They're they're breaking the system. They're proving that they can't just be replaced by the machine when the machine comes. What UPS wants at least for now, is absolutely interchangeable parts. They want the least qualified drivers they can have. So you want to be able to train someone for 15 minutes and pop them in the car and have them follow the GPS and just do it. And then you can pay them very little. You don't have to have some veteran who's been there for eight years and really knows the hood. And plus, he's completely replaceable then with the robot. And as I see it, not only is this just terrible for customer service, you know, we had a guy who was great, who loved the neighborhood, who knew, knew his way around. We had a second guy who was great. Now it's just a mess. You know, my neighbors are asking where their packages are and things are all over the place. And it's the opposite of how you really 
are supposed to be using tech, even if you're going to use it in the icky way. What you're supposed to be doing is let human beings teach the computer. That's what machine learning really is. You have people train computers. That's what all of our Facebook stuff is really about. All of our Google searches, all of this stuff. The, the reason why the data is valuable is not because they're going to market to us. The reason why the data is valuable is because they feed it into machine learning programs to teach algorithms how to be like people. But what they're doing at UPS instead, instead of letting people teach their computers, this is where the house is. This is how to get there. This is the route you should be taking. They're trying to have uh, everyone conform to the computer. Everyone conform to the, the predetermined routes of the machine. And that defeats the whole purpose. In some ways, it defeats the whole purpose. The whole thing that UPS had built over the last couple of decades where everybody loves the, the guys in brown and they were apparently they became a sex symbol and all that. And that's because for a lot of people, the UPS guy is pretty much the only one they have human contact with over the day. It's the only one who rings the bell and stays there long enough for you to sign something and, and exchange a, a word with them. So it defeats the purpose of the delivery company, of the delivery people, or the choice of UPS over any other service if they're all just robots, then why do we pick, why would we pick any one of them? Or even just taking the time and energy for a company to, to listen to the humans that are working there, to actually listen to them and see them as an asset rather than a liability. And uh, not that I need to worry for UPS, but, you know, I do worry for them because when they're going to treat their people as the expendable thing, um, rather than as the asset, rather than as the core, um, they're just going to kill their business. So um, let's watch and see how that happens over the next couple of decades. I don't think it's going to be a pretty story. I'm Stako Troncoso from the Peer to Peer Foundation, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Mushan Zeraviv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Kira Gant, and I'm on Team Human. I'm L.A. Kaufman, and I'm on Team Human. This is Genesis Briar Piorich, one half of Briar Piorich. And we're glad to say we are part of this beautiful organism, the humane species, otherwise known as Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is immersive installation artist and theorist, Ghislaine Boddington. I want to talk about what's the real way or the most accurate way to contextualize what you're doing. In other words, is it... Uh, uh, like in the early days, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, cyber and art and consciousness and human potential were all really part of the same thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we were kind of pushing on it. And, and it wasn't until later that I looked at, you know, kind of earlier uh, cyber artists, say, you know, Bill Viola and people like that, mm -hmm. that they were really using... The arts as 
a way of pushing the boundaries on what would be possible for the rest of society later. And there's that's experiment with this, let's experiment with that, and then eventually whoever it is, whether it's the corporations or government or popular culture or entertainment and Henry Jenkins and those kind of people, then they start playing with it, then it's on MTV or uh, Electronic Arts or somewhere else. But Or is what you're doing the actual thing? In other words, are you developing the the you know technologies and experiments that are the prototypes for uh, you know future future experience and communications technologies? Yeah, and it's hard. Do you know what I mean? It's hard to mm-hmm. know. So are you an are you do you see yourself as an artist, a practitioner? Uh, uh, are you are you making social statements and critique of virtual experiences through the work, or are you just kind of doing unbridled, let's leap into this and let's just play with it. No, it's definitely social critique through the work. And I think, um, I mean, Bill Viola is an interesting example. I actually, when I'm um, presenting a lot, and I I do use quite a few examples of um, historical precedents for things which are now completely in a corporate sector. So mm. another example would be Steve Mann, for example, for example, from University of Toronto, who right. was the first person to um, actually make this crazy pair of glasses and put it in front of his eyes in the kind of late 80s and actually um, uh, start to replace advertising imagery with imagery he wanted to look at so mm-hmm. and then developed that into I think you know in the early 2000s when he actually came and joined us for future physical for discussions he had a network of about 20 students on the University of Toronto campus all connected together through these glasses and exchanging stuff and and then when Google Glass came out I have to say you know the Guardian you know did actually credit they know they mentioned Steve Mann and they said you know yeah the father of wearables and there are quite a few proper creditations to him but he was you know he was started on that what 17 18 years in advance of so I think that a lot of the early pioneers Bill Viola Steve Mann there's many others I could mention from the early glove you know right. manipulation ones through to anybody Patrick tech Clancy stuff. making uh, those environments Environments, I don't know, down in Kansas, remember him? Uh, yes. They were some really fun, crazy people. I mean, yes. I mean, we were young. We were young when they were doing what they were doing, but it formed the basis, really, for the kinds of of work that you're doing now. No, totally. And I've been lucky to work with them. And I started. Um, I mean, I was. I, I luckily for me hit digital video in the late '80s as a young dancer, but only mm. because actually American pioneers came over. So it was a Judson's Church movement and a contact improvisation lot, and Steve Paxton right. and Lisa Krauss, who actually was an early person working with video in the dance scene. And mm. had these big things, which she brought to London, and we did these workshops with her, and I just got completely obsessed with the actual images of ourselves and others with and dancing with them, but also the issues of identity within that and the issues of narcissism, of course, and also, but relativity. And then I just drew a picture of two studios linked up. And we did it, we started about 91, to just with BNC cables using studios next door to each other with a projector in one in both spaces with a big screen and a, and a video camera in both spaces and just pushing the, you know, videoing in one space and, and projecting it in the second space and vice versa and started to play with full-body telepresence, telematics we called it. Yeah, we mm. didn't even use the word telepresence. 
telematics. And we did that for about five or six years um, through to 95, 96. And we got our first chance to do it for real time with using online, really using actually it was with the Janet network and started to work with the university networks the speed that we could working with a lot of lag. Yeah. Mm. A lot of lag. But that for me became the obsession was, and it was exactly what you said earlier, but my obsession was about the communication process and it wasn't, it, the art was there for sure. And of course it was much easier for me to use dance, which is my skill base into that scenario partly because it was about bodies relativity to each other. And we weren't using text or some music, but we weren't using text or words or, you know, and partly because I was already working with interculturalism, with Indian dancers, with African dancers. So I was aware with European networking and international networking that we weren't able to be together enough. And if we could link studios, we could work together more and we could actually communicate more. And I was very obsessed with intercultural communication. I still am and gestural um, interfaces of that. And I really, so it was a, definitely a communication process. And at many points in my life, people have said to me, why haven't you patented this? Why haven't you put this in? Co-? It's mm. like, it's a communication process, which is for everybody. Yeah, it's not. Well, on the other you hand, know, you're, like, and you're being kept alive. I mean, you're alive. It's like, I, I, yes. <laughs> I always think about that too. It's like, oh, aren't you mad about this? Or don't you want money for that? And it's like, they're keeping me alive yeah, here to yeah. do this work. And I'm not going to even second guess that, much less, you know. <laughs> oh, imagine. Imagine if I tried to patent telepresence in 896 yeah. or something. Imagine that I'd probably be dealing with like 35 lawsuits at this point in right, time. Right, that's all yeah, you'd, be. Like, <laughs> you'd be. You'd be you'd be talking to shareholders instead of dancers. Yeah. But mm. the the as you describe it, I mean, the, the early work you were doing was really contemporary with, say, late Merce Cunningham work. Yes. Yeah. But it comes, as I understand it, it's coming from the opposite place, that Merce seemed to be almost trying to uh, understand uh, human expression computationally. And it feels like what you're trying to do is to express humanity out. In other words, where his his work, brilliant though it may be, was kind of imprisoning human form in algorithmic logic. What you're doing is trying to express um, the the human body through technology. Yes, definitely. And I know Mercer's work well from that period through Dance Umbrella. Biped is the one I'm thinking of as you talk. And, right. and his use of life forms with Tekla Shripost, who was leading him through the use of life forms and retraining him. And, and I got to meet him a few times. He was amazing to talk to about this. But you're right. It was very much, he was focusing from the body, the, the, the real living body dancer, you know, with his amazing technique into life forms and back out again. And then using projected, at that point, pre-produced imagery into the stage space. Today, we could do that generatively. But at this that point, you couldn't. It was pre-produced right. work projected into the stage space on gauzes, on multiple layers, you know, around the dancers. Yes, it was showing the body and what technology could, how how technology could represent the body, yeah, um, the beginnings of that. Whereas for me, yes, it's it's been much more about the body and how can the body communicate through technologies, the full mm. body and gestural communication. So not just speech and text. So then the the work for those who aren't um, familiar with it now, you're as the best I could say, you're creating. Um, alternative and virtual spaces 
through which people in the same room can interact with each other through with with extensions with kind of virtual extensions of who they are or they can go like the um just like the jedi meet when some of them are virtual and some of them are in the room these sort of collaborative movement dance experiences of people in different locations but now experiencing themselves almost holographically in one uh, in one event. That's where we're going, definitely. And you're right, um, the connectivity between spaces and actually, you know, my dream and always has been a slight obsession with domes. Yeah, I've always been obsessed with domes. Um, and now I kind of know why it's been part of my life to be obsessed with domes is that full immersion environment where we can have our natural bodies flowing and I can relate to Luke, who's here with me physically, and I can say, hi, Luke, you know, put my hand on him and physically be in connection eye-wise. But I can still relate to you at a distance, whether you're there in telepresence form or holographic form, or whether you're there in a form which is an abstracted form, like it could be that you were generating sound and visuals, which Luke and I were playing with within this space. And I'm really slightly obsessed, and this was coming from the 90s, because my early work with telepresence led, led into other wearables and motion capture and working with triggers and lasers and all that side of stuff. But of course, motion capture in the mid-90s or to the late 90s, we were completely tethered to the ground. Yeah, you know, you had like, you put on all these things and it was just like loads of cables coming out the back of you and you're just tied in one spot. A bit like VR's caught in now where, you know, people try to get away and they can't because the lead's too short. You know, they're trying to explore that world. but um, Or they're stuck on a swing chair and they can only go around in circles, you know. So the tethering was a problem and I'm really interested in untethered because we're not tethered as human beings. We can, we're mobile, we can go anywhere we want to in majority, you know, Obviously, you know, we've, we've, we've got the different different types of bodies around us, but the tetheredness is, is I felt, is just not natural, yeah? Neither right. is wearing loads of things on our bodies. And in fact, you move differently as soon as you've got anything attached to your body or added on. And, you know, I was really, I had the problems with this in the 90s, even with having dot things on us for motion capture. But I mean, VR, I mean, you know, is for me the ultimate joke, really, because it's like, oh, you know, we're not actually, we're all in the same space together, physically wonderful, but we're all going to put these black boxes on our heads and we can't see each other and we can't react to each other anymore, except in that virtual world, maybe if we're in a multi-platform, right. you know. So so for me, it becomes so ironic that we would put these black boxes on our heads while we're in the same physical space, yeah, in a kind of funny kind of way, because I know that we have to go through these things to get to the next stages of research, so. right. I mean, I guess the part of the question is, and that's just a, a, a big one, though. You talk a lot about how you want the human body to be at the center of digital interaction. Yet, so far, we know that, you know, even if I can see your face through Skype as we do this interview, that part of me experiences the rapport with the other person, but a whole part of me, certainly the subconscious part of me, knows that I, it's not getting the rapport that it thinks it's getting. I'm not seeing whether your pupils are getting smaller or bigger. Mm. We're not breathing together. No. We're not conspiring in that way. And now what we're finding is that part of the sort of road rage that people experience on the internet is the unconscious resentment that you're not establishing rapport with me. Even though I know you really are, my body doesn't know it. And because it doesn't know it, it gets sort of frustrated. And... How many of these things do we leave behind in these shared 
kinds of experiences? And are we, uh, you know, at some risk of uh, negating their importance, you know, as we move into these sorts of shared virtual uh, uh, environments? No, I think you're spot on there. And we can't negate their importance because actually it is the deeper layers, like you say, of direct eye contact, of smell, of being able to... We can't lick each other, can we? Distance, <laughs> you know, it's like... It's like and, um, and breath and a mm-hmm. warmth from each other and, and the tactile, haptic, you know, the whole... Um, kinesthetic experience of being with another, yeah, is not there yet. Um, and when I talk about the hypersensory body or the hyper-enhanced sensory body that right. I believe positively can come through this extended transmission of data from ourselves to others um, and back to ourselves in many ways, we can look at things which are well within our grasp. In fact, you know, I often say to audiences, in your hand at the moment with your smartphone, you now have locative technology. You have touch technology to a certain extent. You have, you know, many of these things that we say we needed. Obviously, we've got audiovisual, obviously, you know, but some are still not there. And artists are working on them all. There is now... Um, People um, have just been transmitting perfumes and smell things. There's a lot working on taste, that side. But even better, there's really extended work happening in haptics, tactile, in um, proprioceptic muscle movement transfers, in all this. It's going to go further and further. And we need our body, every single bit of our body, whether it's our blood temperature, our breath, our uh, muscle movement, um, even down to... um, the movement of, say, fluids through our our veins, yeah, to actually be able to have an effect on the data around us, to me to be able to transmit that to you in some way, for you to gather that in some way, to actually understand me as a living being, yeah. And I think then, if we go back to the work we've been doing, making these experiences or installation experiences, what we talk about is this collaborative share space, which is in the middle of us all, that we can come into together from many different places, remote from each other. But in that collaborative share space at this point in time, without putting too much on the body, we can do generative sound and visuals. We can do a certain amount of physical exchange in terms of relativity of the body. We can work with gesture syntaxes and we can start to work much more with small gestural tools that are picking up proprioceptic muscle movement or um, hands gesture stuff. There's some great stuff happening on that side. But, but we're still limited in terms right. of the, the, the depth of experience. And we're not, I mean, I, I would think the wrong way to look at your work is that what you're trying to do is recreate or simulate no, it's yes, real-world human engagement. No. Because we're never... that as, as a spiritual person, as an artist, as a dancer, you know that that's, that's not going to happen. You know, it, it, the best you'll get is some kind of pornographic, you know, textural, tactile, haptic nightmare. Mm-hmm. But we can... So let's say um, we were working on a project together. I'd say, all right, let's get sensors around my heart so mm-hmm. that we can create a 3D virtual immersive Rushkoff's heart and then have people go in the heart and say things that I can hear and they can watch how my heart beats and how it's changing based on the words that they're saying to me. Yeah. So now this is not, it's a real interaction, it's a virtual reaction, but it's not 
a, a traditional human no. to human. Yeah. So it's an enhanced, it's different. And yeah. I feel like as long as we make them different, it's okay versus trying to make it what we already have. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on there too, because there's millions of potential things that like like that lovely project you've just described, which we should definitely do sometime. <laughs> there's millions of po po possibilities that haven't even been thought of yet of these actually exchanges which allow virtual physical blending to happen. And yes, what we don't want to do is what the sex scene is doing. You're right. Absolutely just transpose and migrate across from the t normal, you know, pretty much heterosexual, pretty much white male-led porn sex scene into today's world. We know there's a lot of work on bodysuits, yeah? You can go and get these bodysuits and put them on and they've got sensors all over them and, you know, I can have one this end and we could feel each other up and, you know, etc. <laughs> But what a palaver. I mean, you know, how how to take the, the the instantaneous passion out of anything, yeah, is like, all right, we better go and put our rubber bodysuits on. Uh, it takes me about an hour and a half. Is that all right? Could you hang on for that, please? And, oh, no, this little wire's gone wrong here. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get the welding machine out. And, you know, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So I actually, I keep an eye on all that stuff. And I definitely keep it for some of my presentations, but I'm I'm not going in that direction at all. And it's not about the transposition of, of today's experience. It's much more interesting what you said about how, what are the millions of possible extended or enhanced experiences that are to come? Right. I mean, and that's looking at it more as, I mean, as I do, more as entertainment, exploration, rather than a substitute for something. In other words, this is not the way parents should interact with their babies, <laughs> say, you know? I mean, it can make a good excuse for, oh, well, it's okay now. You can work 3,000 miles away from your infant because they can experience your virtual self. But, you know, we all know they're not, they're not going to. But some of what you talk about, though, um, like the teens you've spoken to who say they would happily, they would happily date a robot, or um, that's... I understand. I mean, I've seen the videos of, of men in, in Japan who have these, you know, cyber doll, you know, silicon doll things that they bathe them and dine with them and love them. I mean, and, and I guess, yeah, it's better if they really can't have a relationship. You know, I'm happy that they've got a doll to, to love. It's beautiful in its way. But, you know, the, just in terms of the, the commodification of relationship and a it's a little uh, scary isn't the right yeah. word. It's just it's a little sad. So when you start talking about how the younger generation is on this, you know, that they're on teleintuition, that they want to get um, sensors sewn into their into their skin and such, what about the user agreements that go on with these things? I, I don't I don't even trust, you know, Facebook to be in my smartphone because I don't know what they're doing to me. <laughs> you know, I I don't trust Cisco or, or Lucent or whoever it is to be on my skin either. No, I think this bit's really interesting. Just to go back to what you were saying about the robot side and friendship, I've just been working with um, on, on this a lot, actually, with um, some of the top, top guys in Britain, Professor Tony Prescott and Noel Sharkey, Professor Noel Sharkey. Mm. And um, Tony Prescott's really interesting. He talks about Aristotle's three types of friendship. And he says... There's, basically, those are utility, pleasure, and of the good. And of the good is the ones when you become very close and you really need long talks. And, you know, pleasure is more of a friend you go for a drink with. 
And utility is more the person you go for a jog with or you go to the gym with. And his point is that robots can be your friends, yeah, whether lovers, friends, domestic carers, whatever, but actually only in that utility bracket. It doesn't go further than that. And that's backed up through... Um, Noel Sharkey, who always says, you know, the phrase he always uses to check to check himself on robotics, you know, and he's a big roboticist, is I feel, therefore I am. So mm. at the moment, it says they're not feeling, so therefore they they don't they not I am, yeah. So until we have I feel, therefore I am, we could, we needn't worry. He thinks it's a long way off if we will ever get there. People like Masaki Fujihata, he's very much like until you can show me a robot that cheats, yeah. Cheats me. Masaki always comes up with these great bits. Yeah, he's a wonderful person to work yeah. with. Um, until you can show me a robot that cheats me, then, you know, sorry, it's not there. There's no way there. But then going further into the um, younger people and implant stuff, slightly a different angle because actually if we go back to Donna Harry- Haraway and the cyborg handbook. For me, the image in the front of her handbook, which is a woman's body, which is very unusual to see, particularly from, um, you know, before 2000, Mm -hmm. she uses a woman to illustrate. She actually placed onto that image probably about 15 points of different um, uh, implant, some of them already happening and some of them uh, um, suggestions of implants and transmissions. And there was even that cat thing on her head. So it was biological uh, grafting or something going on in there. Yep, yep. And... Orlan with her biological graphing and Stellark with his, you know, mm-hmm. try playing with implants. He's another one like Steve Mann, very early pioneer in all this area, of course. And um, and that set of people. And of course, William Gibson saying, don't forget, you've got teeth still. We have implants. You know, We now have actually over 200 implants that are used in medical terms in our bodies, you know, all over the world. Obviously, in Western medicine, many more than developing countries. But you know, whether it's from a tooth to a pacemaker to um, a hip replacement, of course, but to deep brain stimulation from Parkinson's and, and, and muscle motor neuron diseases, which are quite complex. Those are complex implants, yeah, um, you know, drilled into the brain with batteries attached, etc. And you go to Kevin Warwick, of course, who's our big implant guy in Britain, Professor Kevin Warwick. He's tried out now gold, iridium, platinum, all these things in different parts all over the body, Grain of rice implants, yeah, are definitely in. And implant parties are happening in different countries all over the place. Um, I think they did one at Future en Seine in Paris and had a queue of 200 people who wanted implants on the spot. We did one at Future Fest last year, but we didn't do a queuing one. We just did the Future Fest director and one of the other directors of Nesta, who would, you know, we had a tattooist on stage and we had. Um, this association of education about implants came, Bionifican came from Sweden to talk about it. And we also had a woman who's a um, doctor, Dr. Phoebe Moore, who studies implants use in workplace productivity. And she'd studied 20 companies in Denmark and Scandinavia that already implant staff, yeah, with mm. staff permission, of course, yeah. But she's looking at all the issues coming from that, of course, yeah. So implants are on their way. And if you can replace you know everything in your pocket and particularly with you know street grabbing and stealing and you know if you don't need to have house keys on you or you know your travel card your credit card you know your even your mobile in the end potentially these things are it's why I always say you know it's the it's it's the 18th birthday party of five years time the 18th birthday present of five years time yeah so I mean of course the the concern with any of these things you know even a, a benevolent implant, let's say it has, 
your car keys, your house key, and your credit cards in it, which are things that most people are carrying around anyway, and maybe your ID for the for the mm-hmm. cops. Now, it's one thing to have those things on me. I carry my keys, and it's a burden, and it's a sign of a society that doesn't yet trust itself because we've got to lock our doors. Or I carry my credit card around, which is a connection to a giant debt-based currency system and consumer capitalism that I oppose, but I understand this is the way it works and I need that. Putting it on an implant and taking it into myself, though, um, it accepts these, these compromises of human interaction as now given circumstances. I'm making it part of my biology and isn't that, isn't that accepting these models and, and naturalizing them in some ways rather than, and than fighting against them? To a certain extent, I don't think they will be unnatural in the long run. And I, maybe I, I don't think of it as natural or not natural. I think if we look at the normal body... And I hate this word normal, yeah, because it doesn't mean anything, of course, yeah. But uh, we know there's there's thousands of different types of bodies and many right. which have got, you know, got what we'd see as disabled, but it's not necessarily. It's just a right. different type of body. So so we look at prosthesis. Now, they've been around for hundreds of years, yeah. Right. I wonder whether even if we go back to things like the early tools, where, you know, the, the Flintstone axe or even the wheel, they're external to the body, but they've completely changed the way that we've worked, yeah, completely mm-hmm. shifted society, yeah. They're not inside our body. We haven't actually implanted wheels into our feet yet, but that's probably not far off, yeah, so it'll be somebody that does that as well. Or, and um, So I think that we will use what's ever useful for us and... The issues come, of course, around protection and data protection, of course. There's always people that say to me, but if I had an implant in my finger, someone could cut it off and then they could go and open my house up. And I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. Only if you've well, got they a bank, can take bank your keys as well. Me. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it's not like, the issue. It's yeah. more, you know, what is the lock company, you know, what data are they selling about me or what else is on that chip and how, you know, if they could influence my behavior through that chip. They will influence my behavior through it. Personal data vaults, don't we? Right. And I'm someone that believes in personal data vault, having my own personal data vault. So I believe I should have access to all my data should be in one place. It's the same as my donor card for my heart or kidneys. I, I carry a donor card in my purse because in Britain you have to actually state you're happy for your heart or kidneys to be taken or whatever. Right. In other countries that's different. You have to state if you don't want that to happen. But um, I carry one in my purse and I made that decision. That's fine. If my heart's good enough, they can take it. Yeah. And I think it should be the same with personal data. And I think I should be able to state clearly that all my personal data about, say, opening my house, locking it when I go in and out, when I'm there or not, obviously would need to be held in my personal data vault without any access to it by anybody else. Yeah. Mm. Um, Whereas perhaps medical information, I might allow it to be used anonymously to be shared into research pools Whereas, for example, my shopping bill and I'm doing my, you know, finding out what to stack their shelves with on all our stocking bills. I wouldn't mind if they gave me five pounds a month for that, really. So um, that's maybe a simplistic way of saying it. But I am I've been advocating on this personal data bank stuff for many years. And it's uh, I think it's the only way we can hold into um, control of ourselves. I mean, I guess the, the scariest way 
of responding to your work that a smart person anyway would respond. Just crazy people could respond in, any, in lots of scary ways. But is the idea, I mean, sometimes I feel like um, when I move into a neighborhood, I feel like I'm in some ways the advance guard of the yuppie scum, you know, that I move in and then over the next 10 years, the place, it's like I've made it safe for the lawyers and the bankers and all like, oh, look, there's, you know, some white middle class guys in there now. Oh, this is okay. And then, so what have I done? And then when I consider an artist such as yourself, bringing these technologies into people's bodies in the most open and thrilling and pro-human ways, are we just clearing the way for the future Facebooks and Googles to enslave humanity in, in, in a certain way? You know, I, I, I rely on Korzybski a lot and the idea that plants bind energy of the sun, animals bind space because they can move around and find food. Humans bind, bind time because we can explain our experiences to our children and not they don't have to go live through it in real time to, to learn from us. And then AIs, in a certain sense, are binding humans. They're all monitoring us and trying to manipulate us and then sharing their data with each other and then trying new things. So they're, they're binding almost, they're binding human, human consciousness in order to uh, manipulate our behaviors. So when I think about, oh, well, now the AIs, instead of just being out there on Twitter or Facebook, that they're going to be in me and potentially owned by those same uh, kinds of corporations that just naturally just want to extract value from us because that's all they know how to do, then not to say, oh, let's not play with this stuff because all we're doing is making it safe for them. The, the, the nicer way of asking the question is, how can we explore and play in these spaces without simply clearing the path for um, the companies that want to use this stuff very differently? No, it definitely, the way I'm thinking and putting forward um, future possibilities is definitely in this area of um, more utopic thinking. I'm definitely, I'm a happy person when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> so, and I've always, and I've been in the arts and I, and, you know, the, the installations we make are full of beautiful visuals and lovely music and, you know, people touching each other and rolling around on the floor together and um, linking with people in the distance who are touching each other and rolling around on the floor together. And it's all kind of quite beautiful in that way. But it's it's about embodied collective intelligence, yeah. And um, we look at the whole discussion around collective intelligence and the Pierre Levy angles and different people's angles on that. I definitely fit into that, but from the body end of it. And that collective intelligence, as you know, does demand a huge shift in actually how culture and society works. So much more towards the we than the I and the decision to place the I within the we. And actually, mm -hmm. that's a very personalised decision. It's very much linked to politics, personal politics, and, and actually the choice and the, the, the psychological process of deciding when you are an I and when you are a we. And I taught myself that through some tough stuff, yeah, taking it through, particularly through going through, you know, directing, you know, a massive amount, probably about 80 or 100, what we call inter-authorship um, environments, residencies, workshops, where 
at the beginning of them, after the first four or five, I'm thinking like, what the heck am I putting myself through this for? This is a nightmare. Of course, it's a nightmare because dealing with leveling out all the time, the dynamics so you don't get rising clusters of egos coming up and actually trying to create a fluid structure, structural scenario for people to be creative within. And I think probably one of the reasons I've put myself through it is because I think I could have been a very, very, very bossy person. I'm actually quite a bossy person already, but I think I could have been seriously very, very, very bossy. We're actually known the Boddingtons as the bossy Boddingtons in in general. And uh, I think I knew I had to face myself from early, early involvement with collectives. I grew up in um, artist communities. My first collective was the New Dance Collective. I was facing this different world, working with London's Musicians Collective, with the film musicians, film collectives, you know, that kind of 80s London. I was the third generation in. I was, you know, but it was the 80s London. Actually, it was the end of the collectives, really, but it was very Mm. buzzing at that point, yeah, and... um, and I think that I've I made myself face myself and made many others face themselves on the I and the we. Probably about 10,000 people have gone through those types of projects with me. And many of them are out there now. And they still remember that difference between the I and the we. I often in presentations say, go away for a week and think about it. Note down, when do you say I and when do you say we? Are you doing it correctly? Yeah. Are you saying I to take credit for things which are we? You know, we did this brilliantly. It was fantastic. Or, no, I did this brilliant project, you know. Or are you saying we or them when it's not going well? You know, you've got to really try to balance yourself out and be honest. But in that collaborative share space where we automatically become part of a we, even Facebook is a collaborative share space, yeah, in the what we will look back on as a very non-dynamic, very boring collaborative share space because it's just full of text and photos and it's still 2D and it's like, you know, it's like a kind of bad newsletter, really, isn't it? You know, it's a bit of a nightmare with real-time rubbish coming up all over the place, you know. Right. And, um, we will look back at that as being something which is incredibly dull, yeah. And But, you know, but we looked forward to it as something that was going to be uh, fundamentally transformational. You know, the at the beginning, when when social networks and advertising were two different things, when... Search yes. and advertising were different things. We thought of Google as it was the, the beginning of the Gaian mind, you know, hardwiring yeah, the brain. Yeah. And and Facebook was going to be the the precursor to shared consciousness. Mm-hmm. But we ended up filling it with commercial data. And I, what I don't yet understand is how, as we build more things, why they don't get filled up with the same crap. You know, why doesn't, when when someone from the Pentagon is smart enough to watch one of your videos and see, oh, look at these dancers in different places, but they're in the same space, and oh, these could be interesting robot controllers, all of a sudden it's like, oh, all we have to do is get a big airplane hangar, put a bunch of guys in, in a virtual reality, and now they can control our robot army and we have boots on the ground in North Korea. You know, it's... That's I'm the way sure the that, mind, and that that's where the money goes. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. But you know, so we wouldn't it, even have telepresence without the military bit. We always say with telepresence, <laughs> it's like military number one, porn number two, and then we reach the arts and the pioneer sector. Yeah, it's I like guess. unfortunately that's the line of tech coming to us. You know, but Remember it seems like it feels like the antidote to telepresence abuse. 
is incarnate experience that people are spending so much time on their phones and staring into those things that right one way to push through you know one way is to push through and to say okay instead of just looking at this flat two-inch phone let's put these sensors on you let's create this so that you can have something more like real uh real uh, uh, incarnate experience and then that will um, help you see you know, the social reality. And the other would be to say, no, let's just disconnect people from this and get them looking into each other's eyes again and touching and fucking and doing all the things that that reset a person's humanity. Yes, no, definitely. And, um, and I'm with you much better on the second one of those. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, it's, there's a lot of popular references at the moment which are pointing to um, utopic and disutopic ideals for the future. So I don't know whether you've seen um, Blade Runner 2049 mm. yet. Um, not as great a film as Blade Runner, which influenced me heavily, of course, in early points. But actually, it's got, for me, in terms of my work, it's got two or three clear points which are, are proven scenarios. So one is linked to the hologram girlfriend who really wants him to have a physical experience, the young Blade Runner, so actually, she she notices that there's a little bit of a spark between him and this kind of street prostitute. So she actually hires the street prostitute. He gets home from work one day and she says, we can have sex now. And she merges her holographic self over the top of the physical woman, the street prostitute, mm. and who's agreed to do it. Yeah. And you don't see the whole sex scene, but you basically see this complicated fuzziness of their arms coming together, their faces coming together. Now, for me... That was the first filmic image into mass film, out to mass public, of what I've been calling virtual physical blending for the last 20 right. years. Where An augmented actually, reality sex, sort of. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Where one could imagine, say, if I've got my physical self and I have a hologram virtual self that can be elsewhere, could be with you now. So this interview was with my hologram or whatever that it can come back to myself and merge with myself. And then if I add a layer into that where I put AI into myself so I don't have a separate Siri. The Siri of me is me and it's inside me. Yeah, so mm. so I enhance myself through this AI Guilen 2 and I add myself um, to be able to be remote and travel and come back to myself through Guilen 3, which is the hologram. Perhaps I even have a Guilen 4, which is a robot, which also has its own avatars and holograms. So that would be Gilen 5 and 6 and 7, but robot Gilen 5, 6, 7, yeah, and actually travels and distances into different places. So you're in a multi-self environment, yeah, which means ultimately for me that I have to have the Gilen ultimate personal data bank to control all that. Yeah, that has to be held in one right. place. But I've enhanced myself. I can... I can basically teleport, but through hologram, you know, not not through the, the original Star Trek intention, but that's partly why I got into telepresence too, because I really did think we were going to teleport by the year 2000, and it took me till about 1984 to realise that wasn't going to happen, and my dad had been 79 to me, you know, it's like... And I've got... My mum, my dad made me watch the moon landing so many times. I think that was part of it too. So, um, and uh, so I can tell, you know, hologram myself elsewhere. I can have a robot working with me or distance it or use the robot and its avatar form in virtual worlds. Or I can use that as a hologram too. And I've got my Guilen Siri inside me talking to myself and enhancing my knowledge, intelligence. Right. But yeah. then you get to someone like, you know, Martine Rothblatt, another cyber thinker person who would say that, um, 
she she was the one who came up with a, a or CEO of like XM satellite radio and then um, now does bots and things. She would say, well, Ghislaine 2, Ghislaine 3, and Ghislaine 4 all have their own rights. Mm-hmm. And it's not appropriate for you to enslave the Ghislaine robot, you know, and make her do what you want. Now, she's got her own consciousness, her own, uh, you know, once she's an AI, she has a, a right to her own choices and existence. Mm, I, I would agree with that. But I would <laughs> actually also insist that as we're all Ghislaine's, that we're in a collective together too. So we need to, we need to have our eyes and our wees, yeah. And a robot, Ghislaine, would need to have certain rights, which would ne- mean that mechanically it would need the right to be oiled, to be looked after, to be reconstructed if something fell off it, just as I have the right as a natural person to get sorted on on my teeth or whatever else, yeah? And the same for whatever my, my Ghislaine series style one would need. But we would ultimately, maybe actually... We would, I don't like the word spawning, but we would come from the we. The original point to play would be the we, Guylaine, and that would spread out into these multiple selves, which would have their own needs, yeah, and there are, and potentially linked to that, their rights to have their needs, yeah. Right. And then we'd and, come back in the middle again. And you're suggesting, I guess, that somehow, even though we don't have it now with our current level of media, that we'd be able to achieve coherence, you know, as... That, that as individuals and a collective, that we would have enough contact with the natural rhythms of day and night and the biological clocks and our social realities, that we would have a coherent experience of reality. We wouldn't be as, as neurotic and imbalanced and, and impulsive as we are living in the, the current digital spell. Yeah, I think we possibly could be even more tuned into those things because we could actually set at least one of our me's, one of our multi-selves, and preferably the physical one to be, obviously, in biological balance, working with the moon um, cycles, etc., which, of course, you're absolutely right. We have great trouble doing in today's world, which is why we're always slightly feeling in a jarred outer sink scenario, yeah? I mean, this a lot of this thinking is really about thinking about the biological and the physics, AI physics side merging together. And and we know that that is the next set of things to happen. And we're talking here, you know, I don't know, maybe it is 40 years ahead, but it's possibly not. It's possibly more like 200 years ahead. Yeah. But I could see with you, Douglas, for example, the multiple cells that you would possibly wake up in the morning and decide to use the robot self, the avatar self, which you have already in multiple forms, I'm sure, the hologram self, the internal Siri self or whatever, in different ways on that day, which actually might allow your biological self to have a day off. <laughs> so you could actually right. rest. Right, it could. It could. If, <laughs> if I really write. need to fill the... I mean, if I really need to, to keep shoving coal into that furnace, in other words... If, Oh, so the students need me, or the, the oh, I'll send this avatar to do an interview because I don't want to do it and all yeah. that. I mean, it's it's sort of the same. I could grow my career enough to have a human assistant, or mm-hmm. I could decide I don't want to grow anymore. The surface area is already more than I can handle. I mean, I find even though I'm I'm fascinated and and. Uh, I resonate with so many of the things you're describing. I find incrementally in my own life, I'm looking for ways to be using this stuff less and less and to spend more time walking around 
in, uh, in, in the woods, you know, closing email accounts, closing social media accounts, asking, the only reason I have Facebook or Twitter is to promote my podcast. It's the only reason I have it, or the occasional book. It's business. And but it's not in some business, ways, is it? It's not. It's because, not. But because it's you propaganda. have stuff to say. No, but you right. can call it propaganda. But you have <laughs> stuff to say that actually it's very important that a large number of us get to hear. Yeah. And if you didn't have stuff to say that it's very important, a large you wouldn't be doing even doing the podcast or writing books. Yeah. So actually, the dissemination of the kind of thinking that Douglas Rushkoff does is very important. And we need more of that. We need more dissemination of this kind of thinking. And I think completely with you on closing down stuff you don't need, getting rid of all the superfluous stuff, which has been layered onto us. You know, we shouldn't have to have multiple social media accounts. We should be able to have one place again, a vault scenario, which we do everything from with different multi-cells. Yeah. And mm -hmm. ultimately it will get to that. We will lead it rather than it leading us. Yeah. I think it will get there. But if we look at, um, say, for example, a you of the future and whether you have, you're right, uh, you know, I, I'm in the same scenario. Do I make myself earn more to have full-on, full-time assistance or actually not, actually just <laughs> enjoy what I'm doing and do a bit less because I actually yeah. can't possibly do all that Yeah, I think uh, that's true for many of us actually at this point in time. But actually how do we therefore spread ourselves more out but with cutting off from things we have the choice to cut off. And I have a little bit of a problem in that discussion in today's world when so many people still don't even have the choice to be on yet. Right. So I find it slightly neurotic as a white woman who's been born into a very privileged situation, really. Yeah, just luckily. Lucky for me, I was born out of an egg and sperm in the middle of Britain in a very nice white family and had great education and I've been looked after very well. I'm not... I'm not wealthy or anything like that, but it's just, you know, just good yeah. life, yeah? And I've travelled all over the place and I've had an amazing life. And actually, I'm so aware of the numerous women in the world who are not even online yet, who have not even seen the screen yet, who have no say, who have no voice out there in any way. And that, for me, has been part of the Me Too campaign for me. Is For me personally, yes, I've had some horrendous hassle. So I can go, oh, me too, you know, and described five or six experiences which were horrible, absolutely ghastly, and another 50 which were mediumly horrible, yeah? Yeah. But actually, my me too hashtag, it's not, it wasn't about me, actually. It's about the millions of women and girls, girls particularly, who are taken out of education at 12, who are married to some, you know, older guy in the village at, at 13, who are pregnant by the time they're 14, and they've been raped every day for the last two years because it's some 60-year-old they've been married off to, who hardly leave their homes, who never get education again and never get on grid, never get on grid. So I'm sorry, I sound a bit <laughs> pissed off, but I am pissed off at the moment about this easy luxury scenario saying oh I want to get off grid it's a bit neurotic of us yeah I am with the off grid side I turn off regularly and I've learned to I don't have my phone for, use my phone for anything but photography and texts in the summer I turn off at Christmas I've 
you know, I've got off buttons on most of my presentation slides about anything to do with technology. I'm constantly going, and you can turn it off. Yeah, it's like right. But, but imagine if we were using the grid to uh, as uh, for projects like Witness. You know, where we just are using the grid to see what where social injustice occurring. How can we focus on that? You know, rather than whatever, you know, a, a, a American Idol scandal, you know, or music celebrity is, you know, dating this. If you look at the traffic, um, well, the traffic is porn and exploitation of women. But that's another thing. <laughs> if you look at the traffic other than porn and exploitation of women, it's... It mostly meaningless stuff. So we've got this grid. We we tried a few things. I mean, they were they were misguided. You know, like one laptop per child meant well. As you know, a lot of these things meant well. I mean, but they 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 are getting on grid. I mean, if they can get a smartphone, if they can get um, you know cellular service or Wi WiMax or whatever they're using. Um, but the thing that they're getting online too is not something that's supporting their emancipation. Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I do BBC Click on World Service. And right. on that program, we cover lots of art stuff and lots of um, my interest areas, robotics, VR, all this type. But we also cover um, through the journalists that send, sending in reports. A lot of stuff in developing countries and the reports coming through from Africa are more and more interesting because mm. actually there's some incredibly clever use of, say, a smartphone between 40 villagers to actually do their banking and do their and to increase their markets. Yeah. Through one smartphone, they never visit a bank. They never go you know, to the town. These incredible cashless society s- scenarios are way ahead of Britain, of America, etc. There's also a lot of really brilliant social, let's say, shared economy projects coming through here. And what we need to do is up them and make more and more noise about them and enable them not to get caught. And we're often questioning from BBC Click, you know, but is there a middleman? Is there a, is there somebody you knows taking out the middle of this? No, no, right. there isn't. It's just the farmers to the bank, and we're enabling this to happen. And or to the medical scenario, um, it's like drones going in. You know, drones going in to deliver blood. Drones. There's a lot of problems with drones. We know there's a whole scenario around the ethics yeah. and morals. That you know, where's the licenses to say you can't do this with them? You know how they've been misused, etc. But they're also being used incredibly brilliantly in many places, you know, for immediate, urgent blood transfusion deliveries. They can get stuff to remote villages within, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour, which could just would never have happened in the past, particularly for women who are uh, losing blood from pregnancy, etc. You know, Um, in the future, I presume those drones will be transformer drones. So they'll actually probably land, transform into care robots and also actually administer the blood actually the blood transfusion you know so they'll have the skill as well as the delivery point you know so so I think the issue is is how we actually enable this more sharing economy and I'm not sure that is the right word this is maybe why it hasn't clicked yet into the upper echelons of the Twitter the Facebook but you know that actually everybody is looking at that rather than ridiculous, shallow celebrity rubbish, yeah, which we'll never get rid of because that's what some people live their lives in, that ego, yeah. And how do we get the sharing economy to be 
uh, enabled in its best form with its goodness and purpose behind it, which many people involved in it have got, rather than having seen it actually really been hoovered by the corporate misuse of the sharing economy language, like right. Airbnb and, and Uber. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, is, I mean, and that's largely what I write about too, mm-hmm. is, you know, how there's this underlying operating system of extractive corporate capitalism uh, is unrecognized. They don't even, they don't even understand that they've, come to accept that as a condition of nature rather than as an operating system that was developed by people, you know, which is really gets to the same, uh, the the same challenge of technology and robotics and implants and all that uh, there's a certain point at which all that becomes naturalized. It becomes so embedded that we accept it as a condition of nature, which is why I want to make sure that the people who are doing the embedding share my values rather than someone else's. No, we, we've um, um, been running a debate here through Women Shift Digital, our project Women Shift Digital and other projects, looking at the difference between value and values. Mm-hmm. Because we realised when we were talking to politicians and you go, well, what we're really trying to talk about here is the values of, you know, at the base of this. And I go, yes, value, value, very good. We're going on. You know, they don't even hear the S on the end of values. Yeah, it's like, and um, and I think the that you're absolutely right there. There's a very fine line balance between extracting value and creating value. Yeah. And it seemingly everyone goes, oh, we're going to create value for everyone else around us, you know. And by putting this here or doing this business here, the local trading will happen and this and that and showing, you know, and we're going to create value. And in fact, actually, the whole intent is about extracting value. So what we're hitting down to is people who are greedy and people who are not greedy. Right. So it's a greed scenario. I think it's, you know, there's people who, you know, start out, they're just always greedy. They always just want to make the millions. And there's people who are never going to be bothered by that at all because they're actually right. much more about quality of life, like yourself, than they are about quantity. But there's a middle grouping and I think they get swayed. They get into the greedy mode. They might have started out in a sharing economy business, and but suddenly they realize that they can extract value from it. So they right. just do a few little tweaks, and suddenly it's gone wrong. And I think I think that's probably part of why the 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 subtle, more stealth communication and the experiences you create is that they are all group experiences. Yes, you know, most of us experience digital realm very privately, alone, at the laptop, with the goggles, going off into whatever animated, you know, 3D porn war shoot 'em up thing. And what you're doing is whenever there's a, a virtual dimension, there's more than one person in the room. Yes. You know, it's almost like the biblical thing where you... the. Uh, in Judaism, you're not allowed to read Torah unless there's nine other people there. You have to have a minion so that you're going on this, which was the best virtual journey they had at the time, you know, going into text. You're not going to go into these myths alone. You've got to have other people to yes. ground it, to make it about community and mutual aid. And I think that that's the, um, that's kind of the secret. If there was one, if there was a rule of thumb at this point to protect these experiences from becoming um, alienated and animizing and exploitative is to do them together rather yes. than alone. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got at least some kind of conversation going on at key points about morals and ethics. You know, well, should we kill them? We'll kill them. Well, no, why would we kill them? Yeah. So something will be happening there. 
So how do we move from yeah the the multiple killing fields that gaming and and many other other, other virtual scenarios have just focused on as yeah, full on and power based scenarios to actually um, the the love the compassion the let's do it together the sharing scenarios that are you know seem to be that people think they're more boring I don't yeah but you know it's like right. I'm not interested in killing games at all yeah I actually find right. it well, horrendous it's the same as, yeah, but... right the same as uh, you know if you don't want your kid to be damaged from watching television mm. you're supposed to sit and watch TV with the child and then challenge some yes. of the choices that the characters are making or yeah. how did you feel about this and mm. then the negative things don't generally happen to them no it's a, it's it's it allows a conversation yeah and even if it's just two of you but the group environment ensures a conversation and that's in a way is a a safety catch it's a potential safety catch of course you're going to get groups who all agree on the same thing look at the huge political movements which have been negative yeah mm. i'm actually not someone for large groups yeah i'm actually someone <laughs> that really quite likes the smaller group you know like say let's go from 20 to 400 or maybe 4000 that's enough yeah it's like as soon as it gets into the larger even marches and stuff I'll, you know I do do the women's march I do various other ones but I, something in me resists crowd shouting mm. it's it, so yeah. you've got to find something the other side of that which is the conversation the, the checking each other the checkpoints the debate right and maybe you keep it down to sort of down to Dunbar's number so that you can you know actually have <laughs> human relationships with everybody in the experience rather than uh, relating to some mass dehumanized thing yeah, yeah yeah definitely but i mean you are absolutely right there is a massive amount of moral and ethics to get through and whether we are talking about is there going to be a license have to go out with every robot every avatar every you know to how they can use them or not like with pepper i think i think the pepper the robot you can't you're not allowed to have sex with according to the contract you sign ah, um, <laughs> what's the point um, um Oh, is there going to be a robot tax, which actually solves this robots take our job scenario? Are they going to take our jobs? Because actually it may be that the, you know, that that whole area of, I think it's, um, what's it called? Dull, dumb, dull, dumb, dirty, dangerous. You know, actually, they're just going to take the dull, dumb, dirty, dangerous jobs. I think that's George Beakey who says that yeah. uh, 10 years ago. And um at the moment, I think, you know, I'm still on that one. We, we've got many robots doing stuff already. They are doing the dull stuff in majority. Are they going to free us up to do other stuff, more people to be creative? We know humans are creative, so all humans. You know, this illusion that some babies were born creative and others not, you know, we are, I think, finally past that, at least in Western world terms, yeah. But actually, in places like Africa, that was always okay anyway, because everybody danced and everyone sings and everyone, you know. Right. In Bali, they had no professional artists because everyone was supposed yeah. to be doing art. Yeah. I've got African friends from Wagadagu who have got professional dancer, professional choreographer in their passports. And when they, got, when they get come home, every time they go, oh, yeah, we're all professional dancers, for goodness sake. What does this mean? You know, it's like, <laughs> how come you get to go around the world doing that? You know, so... <laughs> What's the big deal? What's the big deal? So, but I think that you know, in those in those areas of morals, ethics, myths, and fears, the uncanny valley that is moving all the time. You know, as we in in different places, in different times of history, in different countries, it's at different points. What is uncanny and what's not anymore? Like robot touch is getting less and less uncanny the more it's used in social care in hospitals in um in home and domestic care does it really matter if 
uh, older person is being aided a lot by a robot at home actually becomes very familiar with that robot and actually becomes a friend with them. I think it's probably better than them actually having a box moving around that they kick every now and again, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. just a machine, yeah? So, you know, these are very fine lines between things that are therefore maybe not putting the body at the centre of digital, but actually putting it at an equal place within the whole digital realm. So. Um, so we always say putting the body at the centre of digital interaction. It, it's helped us a lot to get understanding about where we're coming from, that actually our skills are entirely body-based, you know, robotics, wearables, you know, all right. the body data. That's what we deal with is body data in virtual and physical space. So it's body data space, yeah. But in fact, I'm well aware what we're doing most of the time in these collaborative share spaces and immersion domes, we are actually, what we're trying to do is to create a equality of objects within that whether that is a virtual object or a physical object whether it's a body or a piece of hardware or software or hologram or whatever it's actually how can we collectively work together in a clustering way which allows the we to expand the whole because my experience is the more we pool as a we the better quality results we get thanks for joining team human our guest today was immersion artist galaine boddington You can find out more about her work at bodydataspace.net. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human. Our last best hope for peace. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.